Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Robert Matson, author of Mission, Jimmy Stewart, and the Fight for Europe. Robert Matson, author of Mission, Jimmy Stewart, and the Fight for Europe. Are you a Jimmy Stewart fan? No, I'm not. I, I started out uh, neither a fan nor a critic. Um, and I thought that that was the best place to start because, you know, I don't think you can be credible as an author if you're a fan of what you're writing about. So um, I, my appreciation of him grew as I did my research and writing. Why would you pick him as a subject then if you weren't a fan? That's a long story. Uh, I hope you have time. Go ahead. Um, I had written a book called Fireball about the plane crash of Carol Lombard, the movie actress, uh, in 1942, right after Pearl Harbor. Um, she crashed in a very weird situation in Nevada outside of Las Vegas on this mountaintop. And that book was an unexpected success. I mean, it was a bestseller, and people said to me, what are you going to do next? And I knew I had to follow it up with something commercial. Now, what can you do in 2015, 2016 that's commercial that hasn't been done? Well, a friend of mine said, do Jimmy Stewart in the war. That's never been done. And I thought to myself, well, I can't because it hasn't been done because he wouldn't talk about it. You know, he took the story of his service to the grave. And uh, so the more I thought about it, I walked away from that lunch with my friend thinking, I, uh, maybe I should give this a try. And then I started to get into the challenge of it. And the key was, could I get the, the actual combat mission reports from some DC archive uh, and to tell the story? And so I, I have a crack researcher in DC, and I put her on the task. And she said, well, I need the bomb group, I need the dates, I need the mission, the target. And I had that from Stuart's personnel file, which was the first thing I got. It's 500 pages of personnel file. And um, in like in a day or two, she had found half of his missions, you know, all these files, like 200 pages each of all of his missions. And I realized then, hey, I'm going to go for this. Were you able to find anyone still living who had flown with him? Yeah. Uh, after I had done that initial round of research and I had all these statistics, I knew, you know, when the plane took off, you know, who was on his crew, um, what time they, the wheels up, uh, what the wind speed was, well, I had all that. But then how do you get the real stories? And I found, first I found uh, a radio man from his bomb group still living in Gettysburg, PA, and uh, went to see him, interviewed him at length, great guy. Um, and then I found two of Stewart's co-pilots. Um, one living in St. Louis, and he put me onto another co-pilot from Stuart's own squadron living in San Diego. So I had these incredible untold stories because nobody had asked these questions. So I had those guys, and then I had journals and um, other books that had been written by people in his bomb group, and I had 
you know, obscure newspaper accounts of where somebody would share a story about a particular mission, you know, on the 60th anniversary or whatever. These guys were gone, but they had left their story. So pretty soon I had a, a body of evidence that really told the story that Stuart wouldn't tell. He was quite a bit older than the other people in his crew, wasn't he? Mm -hmm. he uh, when the war broke out, he was already 33. And, um, and most of the guys that were training as pilots were 20, 22. You know, they wanted pilots who had some college, you know, had some uh, brains and experience about them. Uh, and so, yeah, he was a, a good decade older than everybody he was serving with, basically. You refer to somebody who was maybe 26 years old and the rest of the crew called him the old man. Yeah, and Stuart by that time was 10 years older than that. You know, so it was a miracle that he ended up in England, which is, you know, I'm sure we'll get to. How big a star was he by the time he became a bomber pilot? Very big. Uh, when he was inducted, because he, the misnomer is that he, you know, went off and enlisted. Well, he, he didn't. He was drafted. And uh, so um, on the day that he was drafted and was inducted in Los Angeles, it was a circus. It was a media circus with, you know, newsreel guys and reporters, uh, maybe 50 of them. And there are, there are photos of, of people taking pictures, of other people taking pictures of Stuart. It was that crowded in the room. He had just won the Academy Award for the Philadelphia story in 1940. So he, he was awarded it in February, I think, of 1941, and he went into service right after that. But he flunked his physical. He did. He had flunked his physical. When, when he first heard he had been drafted, he tried to go in then, and that was like in October or November, and he went and saw the doctor and, and was turned down because he was underweight. He was six foot four and 139 pounds, which is, you know, this man can't be healthy, right? Well, he was healthy. He was just you know, it's another thing that people don't understand about Stewart is how high-strung he was and, and what a high metabolism he had and how he always had trouble keeping food down. He always had trouble keeping weight on. Um, the first thing they tried to do at MGM was bulk this guy up, and they gave up because there was nothing they could do. You know, milkshakes and raw eggs and anything they tried to do, steaks, it didn't work. He didn't put muscle on, and he finally had to get the doctor, the army doctor, to write him like a get-out-of-jail-free card that said, you know, this man's never going to put on weight, but I'm certifying that he's healthy. Uh, a little bit of background about him. He, is it James, Jimmy, Jim? To me, he's Jim. Uh, to his friends, he was Jim. Um, Jimmy was his persona, his public persona that he he would play on more and more and more as he got older and he ended up on the tonight show and he was this doddering old man and just made you smile you know the way he would pause over his words well that was an affectation of his you know well, that was an act yeah it was an act to a certain extent and, you know when you're 80 years old of course you are going to slow down but this guy knew what the public wanted and he tried to give it to them at all times that's jimmy Jim, to me, is the intense loner, um, the introvert, very private, closed-off person that almost nobody really knew. You know, that's Jim to me. And James is just is the, the name that he signed on his contracts. Well, he was, if he was an intense loner, how did he come to be a, a Hollywood star? It was a long road that began when he was at Princeton trying to find a major, you know, that he liked. And he tried this, then he tried that. He ended up in architecture, and his father thought, great, my boy's going to be an architect, except one thing, 
he didn't really want to be an architect. It's something that he could do, and that's what he got his degree in. Could have gone to graduate school as an architect, but he had caught the acting bug. And um, even though he's not an extrovert like many actors are, he had an affinity for it because acting allowed him to be successful people. He could be an extrovert as long as in the script. So uh, that's what he did. Um, uh, that's what he, he found that he liked because another key thing about Stewart is that he was easily bored. Uh, and if you're going to star in a play or you're going to take even a bit part in a play as a chauffeur or whatever, you have to learn these lines and you have to do it over and over and over again. But then you get to go to another script and be another person. And that really appealed to him because he could be, he could get the girl, he could be a hero, he could wear a costume, you know, he loved all those things. And that's how he ended up being a Hollywood star was because it was, it, it really fit his personality. Grew up in Indiana, Pennsylvania? Mm -hmm. Small town. Uh, he and I share that. We come from small southwestern Pennsylvania college towns, both of us. He was Indiana PA. Um, I grew up in the little town on the Mon River of California PA. So I understood that mindset, you know, that, that Protestant sort of um, small town mindset. Both towns were mining towns. Both towns were farm farming towns and so we grew up with that in common which I thought was pretty important to understand him. Military family. That's where the title of mission comes from. Mm. It's the, the family mission to serve your country and that went all the way back to the revolution in his family but primarily was his two grandfathers. Uh, his father's father was James Maitland Stewart who Jim's named after, sergeant in the Army Signal Corps in the Shenandoah Valley under General Philip Sheridan. Saw a lot of campaigning in the second half of the war. And he served under Custer, and he was under Custer at Appomattox. There was a little battle at Appomattox that really was the last straw for the Confederacy. And J.M. Stewart, Jim's grandfather, saw Lee ride in, get off his horse, sign the surrender, saw the turning over of the arms of the Confederate Army, what was left of them, and told Jim about it. You know, Jim learned about service and sacrifice and history, not from a book, but from his grandfather, who lived into the 1930s. And that's just on the one side. The other side, um, Colonel Sam Jackson was uh, one of the heroes of Gettysburg's second day. Uh, while Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain was up on top of Little Round Top doing all those cool things that were in the Killer Angels and the movie Gettysburg, uh, Sam Jackson and the 11th Pennsylvania Reserves were at the bottom of Little Round Top uh, fending off um, Longstreet's advance at the end of the second day. And, and at one point, at a critical moment, uh, Jackson led a charge of the 11th Pennsylvania, just like Chamberlain led a charge, and, and gained like 250 yards. Not a lot, but it, was, it helped to halt the Confederate advance. And a, a senior leader rode up to Jackson with hat in hand and said to him, sir, you have saved the day. That's a military tradition. I was just in Gettysburg the other week and I went and I saw the, I saw where they ended up, the 11th Pennsylvania, you know, they have a nice monument that was the ground that they had claimed and where they had stood. And, and it really struck me because there's a little round top behind you and you see the ground they advanced over, which is what they call the Valley of Death, for crying out loud. 
And so that's quite a daunting <laughs> heritage to have. You know, you have to live up to that because your father is saying to you, your father is the keeper of the flame, and he's saying, one day it's going to be your turn, son, and you better be ready. Was he a good student? Uh, Jim was a lousy student, really, you know, because he, he was easily bored. But he went to Princeton. He did go to Princeton. His dad willed him to go to Princeton. <laughs> and, um, and Jim had gone to Mercersburg Academy, and he, you know, he was an okay student, but he, he, he wasn't his passion, and, and he just he didn't know what he wanted to do. When did he start getting paid to act? Um, the university players, uh, the Princeton people went up to Cape Cod and they, they did some acting up there and they started to get money for it and they started to drift on to Broadway. It was this a group of people that ended up in Hollywood, you know, Mildred Natwick and uh, uh, Burgess Meredith was one of these people um, and Henry Fonda was uh, Stewart's best friend from those days on Cape Cod. and. Uh, one by one, they went to Broadway, and then one by one, they got called to Hollywood because, you know, it was a it was a, a people mill in Hollywood. They needed more and more. There was more and more work in Hollywood, and they need more and more actors, including these two string beans, Henry Fonda and uh, James Stewart. Did he make a name for himself on Broadway, or did he just do bit parts? He did bit parts that got a little bit bigger and a little bit better. Um, one of his pictures, or one of his uh, plays, was Carrie Nation, uh, and he he did a lot of performances of these things over and over. And he was honing his craft, and he had some, you know, some important Broadway people start to get interested in him. Him, and and that led to uh, casting director at MGM um, starting to you know pay attention to this one. And why would you, though? I mean, I, I, I find that the hardest thing of all, is that he wasn't particularly handsome, and he was ungainly looking, you know, being so tall and so thin. Uh, but he, he got the call because I think it's just a raw talent and a raw something they saw in him that they thought, eh, this kid maybe could be a character actor. When did he get interested in flying? Uh, that one, that goes back to Indiana, and he's about... When, he, when his father went off to World War I, Jim was captivated by World War I, by what's called the Great War, of course. There wasn't a World War II to compare it to, but um, Jim uh, started to collect like paintings like on magazine covers of uh, anything that had a plane on it would end up on his wall. Then he started to build airplanes, and he, he needed to uh, go up. And so after the war, there would be barnstorming pilots coming through who had flown in the war, and they had got surplus planes, and they were flying around to make money. And Jim saved up his money and got turned, talked his parents into letting him go up in a plane. And so once he had gone up once, that was it. You know, and in the book, I talk about certain people who were born to fly, and Stuart was one of them. He ended up getting a commercial pilot's license. He did. Um, did he plan on doing anything with it? Yeah, <laughs> serving his country. Um, not, not being a commercial pilot. No. Uh, he, the first thing he did uh, when he got to Hollywood and started making this $350 a week was to uh, take flying lessons. And then he bought his own plane. And the plane that he bought in whatever, 36, 37, was a Stinson Army trainer. And, uh, and so he, um, he knew that that was what he would train on in the Army when he became an Army Air Corps flyer, which was his only, really, wish in life. And so uh, he 
carefully logged his hours. Anytime he had a free day, because you, usually they work six days a week in Hollywood, on, his, on Sundays he would be logging hours, logging hours until he could get his private pilot's license and then his commercial rating, which he got right before he went into the service. And he did all that to become a military pilot? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, he knew that war was coming. How could you not, you know? Uh, you could see the rise of Hitler. Um, you could see the uh, Imperial Japanese buildup. And he knew this was coming. And he wanted to be ready. And he knew that this was his time to serve. A little bit about his Hollywood career. When he got to Hollywood, what, what was his first movie? Uh, he was in something called The Murder Man, which was a Spencer Tracy picture. Tracy had moved to MGM, and this was his first picture. Um, and Stewart played a goofy, I mean, if you see it, he was named Shorty, and it was just a, 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 an over-the-top character role. And, uh, and from there, he got another bit part, and then another one, and he was, you know, a killer in After the Thin Man, and he was a killer in a Jeanette McDonald picture. So they didn't know what to do with the kid. And then he got a break um, as Eleanor Powell's leading man, the unlikeliest song and dance man ever in something called Born to Dance. And uh, then, you know, he started to get a reputation as a, a really hard worker, Pennsylvania Values, you know. And, um, and then he started to be asked for, like Ginger Rogers asked for him in Vivacious Lady in 1938. So he goes to RKO and he makes this picture. And then uh, he gets noticed by Frank Capra and he makes You Can't Take It With You in 1938 at Columbia. And then in 1939 he makes Mr. Smith Goes to Y. I mean he's on this tremendous progression because he's so talented and so versatile. Can you explain the studio system? Uh, sure. Uh, actors were signed, just like baseball players, you know, actors are signed to a contract and it's an exclusive contract and usually they ran seven years and that's what Stewart signed in 1935 was a seven-year contract and then you are the exclusive property of that studio and they can trade you around like sorta of like baseball players because you can they'll loan you out to RKO or Columbia and in exchange Columbia will lend them a star and that's the way the studio system worked was that you were under exclusive contract for seven years and you had no say really and what you were going to do, you just were assigned, here's your script, learn your lines, you know, report on Monday. And they worked tremendous long hours. You know, eight to six was their standard, and then they would work evenings, and it was six days a week. But how many movies would they make in a year? Uh, some, Stuart would make up to seven pictures a year uh, in various roles. This was early on. When he became a star, the usual star would make three or four a year. Was he well paid? Yeah. He was well paid, and he never spent a nickel that <laughs> he didn't have to. Uh, he, he was uh, always very good with his money and a very smart investor. You, you also talk about him being quite the ladies' man. Can you talk about some of the women he dated who are big Hollywood stars? Well, first of all, Margaret Sullivan. Yeah. Margaret Sullivan was a very complicated uh, human. Um, she was a Broadway star. She had come up with one of these extroverted Southern Belle, you know, very, very charismatic people. Uh, if you look at her today, you know, you think, eh, you know, she's all right looking, but she's no glamorous movie star. She's no Rita Hayworth or whatever. Uh, but she uh, charmed the pants off of, of men, you know, sometimes literally. And, and Jim really fell for this one hard. Unfortunately, she married Jim's best friend, Henry Fonda. 
And then she married another of Jim's best friends, Leland Hayward, who was a very powerful Hollywood agent and producer. So it never worked out for them, but that was his ideal, was Margaret Sullivan. I want to read uh, something you wrote in here about uh, Walter Pidgeon, who worked with Stewart and Sullivan in 1938, said it was so obvious he was in love with her. He came alive in his scenes with her, playing with a conviction and a deep sincerity I never knew him to summon away from her. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but they were never an item. Well, you know, there's some speculation that indeed they were an item, that, that at one point early on that they had had a thing, you know, a physical thing. Um, it's hard to say, but the psychology of Jim is, yeah, they probably did have a thing because Jim was against all odds of what people think today. He was a very physical person. He was an aggressive lover and became known around Hollywood as a Don Juan. And, it, and you know, the psychology of that is that Jim needed to prove to himself that he was attractive because here he is a six foot four guy he hated the way he looked he hated how thin he was and he thought he must be just you know too gangly and gawky and whatever and that, so he needed to prove he wasn't and so that's why I go into such depth about these women and how this all happened because he had to prove himself militarily he had to prove that he was uh, you know worthy of the Stuart name uh, as a soldier on the one hand he had to prove he was worthy uh, as a lover, you know, as a, a, an attractive man. That was what he, these were the two things in his life that were important for him to prove, and he proved them both. Uh, he also dated uh, Ginger Rogers for a time, and Marlena Dietrich, and Olivia de Havilland, but never married any of them. Loretta Young, uh, yeah. Um, de Havilland was close. He knew he couldn't take any of these women back to Indiana, PA, and introduced them to mom and dad. Oh, here's Ginger Rogers, you know, who came up on the mean streets and was, you know, much older than her years. Or Loretta Young, who had Clark Gable's illegitimate child. You know, how are you going to explain that to mom and dad? So, um, a Dietrich, how would you possibly explain, you know, Dietrich to anyone? So, uh, no, he, he never, and that's what was one of the problems was he would back away at a certain point because he knew these women would take him very seriously. Here's this, you know, Here's this little boy that we I have to mother, and you know, and he would just withdraw. Norma Shearer was a big one, you know. That's a big important one because she was the queen of MGM. She had lost her husband. She was a widow, and Jim. She's older, six, seven years older than Jim, and and she does the Norma Desmond thing with Jim Stewart, and and oh, the, from Sunset Boulevard. From Sunset, <laughs> that is where that was. That was the inspiration for Sunset Boulevard was Stewart and Norma Shearer. And the gold cigarette case, you know, crazy really? about the boy, yeah, because the um, the scriptwriter for for that who wrote that script um, was at MGM and saw that, and it was the talk of the studio with Stewart and Shearer, and you know, so that's a cool thing, and uh, and and Jim got just as uncomfortable with that relationship as William Holden, you know, I mean, when you see William Holden just like squirming, that was the way Jim felt grew to feel about this relationship because he couldn't get that close to people. He didn't, he didn't like that. He did not like to be a kept man, and that's what Shearer did with him. Did he keep in touch with the folks back home in Indiana? Did he go visit when yeah. he was a big star? Yeah, he, he, he was very close to his dad, and they would talk on the phone a lot, yeah. Uh, he would go home when he could. 
uh, he would pat, he would like be, the, all the stars would go to New York City and they would go around and, and, and any time he was close by, yeah, he'd stop in. Did his father approve of what he was doing? No. Oh, he didn't? <laughs> no. No, because his dad wanted him to do, you know, his dad ran a hardware store. You know, his dad saw farmers and miners all day. He, so um, what Jim was doing was silly and he was in with this bohemian crowd and he was, you know, he needed to settle down and get a real job, and he kept not doing it. In fact, he kept making more and more money that he ended up funneling back to the hardware store when it had a hard time. So, I mean, like, what was Dad supposed to do? So, uh, the war came, and he wanted to get in the Army, and it sounds like he had to pull some strings to get in. He did. He did because of this problem, and, and so... Uh, they thought the War Department and MGM both, you know, MGM has his contract, the War Department has his body, <laughs> and they got together and they thought, okay, we'll let him, we'll let him in. So yeah, he's got this, this doctor's excuse to get him in, so he, we'll induct him, and he is going to be a, a morale guy. You know, he's going to make pictures, and he's going to help us recruit pilots and gunners, and, and so we've got, we got the plan. And so that yeah, you say here, after basic training, Stewart would be assigned to the motion picture unit at headquarters squadron in Dayton, Ohio, for the purpose of making motion picture shorts for the Air Corps. Yeah, right field in uh, Dayton, yeah. And Jimmy Stewart didn't like that. No. And so here's Private Stewart, you know, private, a five, six foot four, 32, three-year-old pilot, private, goes to the commanding officer where he was assigned at Moffett Field and says, don't make me do that. I don't want to do that. And so the private, because he's a famous movie star, gets those orders negated. He doesn't go. He doesn't go. He stays at Moffett Field. He becomes a squadron leader. You know, he just he drills troops, basically, as a corporal. And, uh, but all the while, you know, he's, he's going for his wings. That's what he wants. So he spends the second half of 1941, before Pearl Harbor, you know, flying planes, flying planes, logging more time, you know, and, until he can take his, his pilot's examination. He gets approval to go for his wings, and he wins them at the beginning of 1942. Did his commanding officers ever say, well, you're not going to fly combat. You're a big Hollywood star. It wasn't the commanding officer. It was way up. It was in Washington. It was that mm -hmm. level that said, you know, you're stuck. You're, you, you can't. We can't let you. What good could possibly come of you going overseas and getting shot down? You know, because they knew he wanted to be a pilot. He's six foot four and he's 32, three, four, five years old. So he's not going to be a fighter pilot. He's too, his reflexes aren't there. He's too tall. Um, so that's, that relegates him to the bombers. And so they thought, all right, so you, now you're a second lieutenant. Um, you can train pilots. We'll let you do that, but you'll do it stateside. So he trains pilots. He trains bombardiers. He takes people up. And the whole time he's just like dying inside because this is not what he wants to do. Now, in retrospect, it's a really valuable thing what he was doing, you know, because they were stamping out pilots, pilots, pilots because of the, the war in Europe that I'm sure we'll talk about. So he's doing a very important thing, but personally, the mission was, I gotta fight. I gotta prove to myself that I'm worthy. And so nothing short of that was gonna do. How did he eventually get sent overseas? Well, he became um, this instructor, he got his captain's commission when he uh, was certified on four-engine bombers. So Flying Fortress B-17 was his specialty, 
he started training B-17 pilots at various bases. And um, he was in, I think it was Boise, uh, when he came upon a leader, a very cool colonel, Pop Arnold, who is, I think, younger than Jim, you know, because that's how old Jim was. He's older than most of his officers, um, that said, you know, I can, see, I can see what this is doing to you. I'm going to help you. And so he, they sort of stayed a little bit under the radar, and, and there, was, there were all these bomb groups being formed because of the, the, the air war over Europe and how many guys were being lost and how many bomb groups were being decimated by this horrific air war. And one of the new bomb groups was the 445th that was mustering uh, somewhere, and, and it ended up at Sioux City. Um, and, and that's where Jim went in the, oh, August 1943. As a captain, he became the operations officer of that new bomb group. And within a couple of weeks, he had been switched to a squadron commander because of his experience as a training pilot and his experience as a human being. You know, he's this Hollywood star who that's not just for show. I mean, he has stood up to Louis B. Mayer. You know, he's, he's broken bread with Jack Warner. You know, this is a guy who's got real world experience. So he becomes a squadron commander and, and they're, they start, they're in like the final phase of training to go to war. How big is a squadron? A squadron's 15 planes and crews and the ground crews that go with them. And there are four squadrons in a bomb group. So he was, you know, one of, uh, 60, basically 60 planes and crews. When did they end up finally go, going overseas? They trained and trained and trained. He had some close calls. He almost died, you know, in a, in a crash landing at one point. Uh, lots of men died in training because yeah, this, was, this was a rough thing. Um, the technology was just catching up to the need you know, for these heavy bombers. It sounds like from your book that a lot of planes just had routine mechanical problems while they were in the air. Yeah, and uh, especially the plane that he ended up in, the B-24 Liberator. Um, it was November uh, when they made the crossing. They took their planes by this circuitous route off of Florida to Puerto Rico to South America, across to Africa and up to England. November of 1943? Yeah. What was going on in the war at the time? Um, the only Americans fighting in Europe were the flyers of the bomb groups and the fighters that protected them. And every day they would go to Germany to bomb industrial targets. They flew exclusively in daylight. The American strategy was we're going to hit, we're not going to bomb indiscriminately. We are going to hit the, the targets of war of Germany. And that's their, primarily, you know, their manufacturing. They, want, he, they wanted to starve their ability to wage war. And so every day they flew missions from England, from all these bases in the eastern part of England, in East Anglia, to Germany or to France. And uh, the part of the missions would be unescorted by fighters. And so the German fighters were just knocking these guys out of the sky on a, a horrible basis, day by day. And that was the war that he, was walking into, uh, he landed in England in, on Thanksgiving Day, 1943, and uh, part of the second wave, because the first wave had been decimated. Why didn't they have fighters going along with the bombers? 
Um, at that phase of the war, they didn't have the technology. The, the fighters had limited range. They didn't have the fuel to get them all the way to the target and back. So they would, there would be this uh, very intense choreography where you know, they would be protected here by this group, and then another group would pick them up here, and then another group here. But then there would be this middle ground where they couldn't, they couldn't uh, have any air cover until later in the war, a little bit later, a little bit later, when um, they developed drop tanks that they would use their fuel up, and then they would drop them off the plane, and then they would have extended range. What was his first mission? His first mission was December 13, 1943, to Kiel, Germany, very northern tip of Germany. Um, and it was the first mission for the entire bomb group. And he was second in command on that mission. And, uh, and it was a very successful one uh, that didn't lose any planes, um, didn't really face any fighters. There was flak, but no fighters. Um. Talk about the Gotha mission, because that sounded pretty harrowing. The Gotha mission was, was devastating. Um, in February 1944, uh, the strategy was to knock out, we're going to take one week and exclusively go after German manufacturing of aircraft. We want to knock out the German aircraft industry, because until we do that, A, we can't win the war, and B, we can't invade Europe. We can, there can't be a D-Day until we get control of the skies. So um, they devised something called Big Week, which was this week of just concentrated bombing of these particular targets. And they needed good weather. They finally got it in uh, around February 20th, 1944, is when Big Week started. And Jim flew the first mission of Big Week, and then um, there was the Gotha mission, which was February 24th, 1944. Um, Jim did not fly that mission. Uh, there were 25 planes from the 445th that went on that mission, and 13 got shot down, 12 or 13 got shot down. And so, you know, 50% casualty rates, all those crews are gone, they're dead, or they're in prison camps, or they're on the run in the ground in Germany. And the survivors that came back went through their after mission interrogations, and they told horrific stories, just horrifying stories of what they had gone through, how intense the German fighters were, how planes were blowing up, how flyers would, would come out of these planes, the exploding planes, and crash into the windshield of other planes, you know, bodies falling through the, I mean, it was, it was hell on earth. Jim was leading the mission the next day, and it was one of the only things he would ever talk about in the war makes my eye twitch just even talking about it. Um, lying there in the dark, thinking about how he was going to have to go back to the same target. They went back to Gotha the next day because they didn't finish the mission. <laughs> and um, uh, he finally just got up and he talked about looking out into the misty, you know, English night, thinking about if he could, was he going to make the right decisions? Was he going to do the right thing? Were they going to uh, succeed, was he going to get home? And so that was, you know, his worst mission. And it was because it was just as bad the next day. And he, that was the, the day he almost died. Well, and part of his job was to write letters back home to the parents of uh, lost uh, soldiers? Yeah, it was his responsibility as a squadron commander, you know. Um, 
He lost, he lost pilots. He, he didn't even get into combat before he lost his first pilot and crew, and that was on the, you know, ferrying planes to England right off Puerto Rico. One of his planes went down. It was shocking. You know, Albert Poor, Second Lieutenant Poor went down. Um, he knew all about it. He, he had trained with Poor, you know, and, and Poor's suddenly gone, and he's writing his first letter home. You know, dear Mr. and Mrs. Poor, I'm sorry to tell you about your son. And yeah, and he kept doing that the whole time he led his squadron. Can you describe the day of a mission? I mean, do they know they're going the next day, or how, how often do they have missions? How much time in between? How are they told what the target is, just sort of step by step? Yeah, um, they would be told that they were likely flying, and they would usually have less than a day's notice that they were going up. And a lot depended on the weather. A lot depended on, you know, was their plane working that day? Was there a plane for them? Because they were always patching these things up and getting them airworthy again. They worked all night to get the planes out. They, the ground crews worked all night. The flyers tried to sleep. And if they, were, um, if they were going up on a day, they would hear a knock on the door, or that was the officers. You know, they, they would, the officers would get a better warning than, you know, mission today, which was what they were told one way or another. Um, and so the crews would all dress and they would shower and they would get their escape kits which is you know it's got a little silk map in it and some coins and a, a translation card in case they got shot down you know imagine you, they, some of them get morphine in case they get wounded um, they go to a briefing they eat their breakfast they they get better food because they're flying that day they get real eggs instead of powdered eggs and um, then they go through intensive, um, well, that they got to put on their parachute. I mean, they, it's a whole complicated thing because they are, these guys at this time in the war are flying at 20,000 feet in unpressurized cabins. Um, that are, at, in European winter, it's 30 below, it's 40 below at 20,000 feet. You know, basically it's, it's one degree colder every 300 feet you go up. So it's already 35 degrees on the ground and then you do the math when you're up there. So you need a heated flying suit which had just been invented. So um, you plug in the suit and it completes a circuit. Anything breaks the circuit, then you're freezing at, at 20,000 feet. And a lot of things went wrong in those flying suits. You would be on oxygen from 10,000 feet on, so you had, you, had, you, you had your headset because you were in a, the loudest thing you can possibly imagine is a, is a four-engine <laughs> bomber. And so you've got a headset on to try to cut out some of the noise so you can hear what's going. It's nothing like 12 o'clock high where, you know, they're chatting in the cockpit, nothing like that. Um, so you've got, basically what I'm trying to say is you have all this equipment that you are lugging out to this plane, throwing it up inside. You get up inside, 40 pounds of equipment, and uh, then you uh, go through all these procedures to warm up. You know, you're smelling gas the whole time on a B-24 because of these fuel leak problems. And so you know not to smoke in a B-24. Uh, or you hope there isn't a spark because the next thing you know is you're dead. And then finally you take off. And, and that's another thing. You know, at this time in the war, it's, it's England. It's cloudy. Uh, you take off into very crowded skies because there are dozens and hundreds of planes. So, you, you know, the pilot has to go, Okay, so you're going 45 seconds, you're climbing at this rate, and at 45 seconds, you turn to this new course, and it's a magnetic compass heading. If you turn at 46 seconds, you're going to crash into the plane that's taking off next to you, and boom, 20 guys are dead, and two planes are lost. 
and that's before you even get up and form into your battle group to cross the channel or cross the North Sea into Germany. I mean, the casualty rates were not high by coincidence. And then, oh, by the way, then you have to go fight the Germans. How long would a mission be from takeoff to landing? Um, seven, eight, nine hours. You know, the really long ones to like Munich or Berlin were upwards of 10 hours. What did they do in their downtime? Um, it's one of my favorite chapters in the book is, you know, these are kids. These are 20-year-old kids. They rode their bikes. You know, if it was a bad weather day or whatever, they had hangers, they'd play ball. They read comic books. You know, it, they were kids. And, and so they occupied themselves as best they could, considering, you know, all of the privations of life in the service um, on, you know, I went to Tibbenham, England, which is where Stewart's base was for the first part of the war. And, you know, it is desolate. You know, it's, it's in the middle of nowhere in, in East Anglia. It's near Norwich on the eastern, very almost to the coast of England. And there's nothing there. There are two pubs. That's it. There's a train station. There's a church, uh, a 500-year-old church. Is there any evidence today of the airfield? The landing, the, the runways are there. And there are a few of the Nissen huts from the day. Um, and actually, not Stuart's quarters, but identical quarters to him are located, you know, it's basically the chicken coop of a farm now. And, and I went in there and, and saw, you know, exactly how he lived. And you can still see the hole in the ceiling where the Franklin stove was, which is the only way they could keep warm. It was rough. Was Jimmy Stewart ever called on to do any Hollywood star stuff while he was there? Not while he no was there. No appearances or? No, not when he went to England, no. Um, he made a couple of appearances early on and then he said no more you know I won't do it I won't do it there was one time when they wanted him John Houston was making a short subject about uh, it was called winning your wings about the glamorous world of a bomber pilot and a bomber crew and you know and they talked Jim into theoretically doing it he was you know he was back in Hollywood and he said yeah all right I'll do it well they showed up Warner Brothers sent this caravan up to shoot at Moffett Field which is where he was stationed and he and there's a story in the, in the book um, this the guy the kid he was a young guy who went up to direct that Owen Crump it wasn't Houston himself it was this Warner Brothers director you know like a B unit director went up and and when Stuart was Stuart was flying around in his uh, AT6 he looked down and he saw, uh, I know that's a film crew. Damn it, I know that's a film. He was furious because he hadn't been told they were coming and he hadn't agreed, okay, on this day I'm gonna do this. He landed and he got into this big fight with poor Owen Crump who was just sent there. And Crump had to talk him into doing Winning Your Wings and Jim shot it you know, quickly and it was nothing for him to do. But he said after that, forget it. You know, if you can go on YouTube, type in Winning Your Wings. It's a cool little picture that used, you know, Warner Brothers talent and Stewart narrated the whole thing, but he hated it. How many of these old Jimmy Stewart movies were you able to dig up? Um, everything, pretty did, much. Did you watch them all? A lot of them. I, I can't say I looked at all of them, but, you know, I saw his first speed, his first... Uh, Starring picture, it was a B picture, um, then Born to Dance. Yeah, I, I went through a lot of them, and especially the Margaret Sullivan pictures to get that vibe, yeah. 
You say in here he did a movie with Shemp Howard, one of the Three Stooges. Yeah, that was while that was before he went to Hollywood. That was in New York City. Yeah, and that one I didn't see, but I hear it's pretty bad. Did you become a Jimmy Stewart fan watching these movies? Yeah, um, sorta. Yeah, um, he he's just got he's got something. He, his range is incredible. Um, usually when you spend a lot of time looking at a star you see boom you know you bump into their ceiling which is sort of their Peter principle it's as far as they could go as an actor but not not Stewart he whatever it was he could do it well he went a few years during the war not making any movies if if you watch movies not knowing when they're from is he a different actor before the war and after the war yeah that's a good question yes he is yes he is um, if you look at beginning with it's a wonderful life which is his first picture back uh, I just watched it on the big screen a couple weeks ago, and, and I was, you know, I've seen that many times, but now knowing what I know to look at the intensity of that performance where he's just like, he's on the edge, he's a man on the edge, and, and that's what Jim was when he came back from war, was a man on the edge. So you're just seeing a little glimpse of the real Jim. And then uh, he would start to look for roles where he would play a complex character because he was one now. Um, and so you, if you look at a lot of his pictures after the war, call Northside 777, and then uh, especially as Anthony Mann Westerns, Winchester 73, The Naked Spur, Man from Laramie, you see this tortured soul sort of a side of Jim. And, um, and that's because of the man he had become and what he wanted to express on the screen, what interested him as an actor. Some of his Alfred Hitchcock characters were. Oh, well, Vertigo, you know, yeah. I mean, that's the, the big one where he's playing, <laughs> you know, a tortured soul, you know, and that, that was him. Well, well, were you able to figure out what he would have been like to be around in England in, in the time on the ground as a person? Yeah, um, I, uh, the guys talked a lot of, about that, you know, and, and he just wanted to be left alone, you know, and, and it's cool when he got a drink or two into him, um, and was fraternizing, he would talk about life in Hollywood. And he talked about the women, you know, because the guys wanted to know what were they really like. And he would, you know, he would relax and talk about, you know, being with Lana Turner. And he would talk about, you know, being with Judy Garland. And especially one of his favorites was Harlow. He had had a, a physical thing with Gene Harlow. So uh, he, uh, he opened up that way. And it's Made for good stories. Yeah, it made for good stories, and he liked to tell stories. Mm -hmm. And um, and the senior brass liked to hang out with, you know, Captain Major Stewart because he was famous, and you know, he attracted a lot of company. Was he involved with D-Day? Yes, and and that's one of my favorite chapters too. I have a lot of favorite chapters in this book. Um, by this time, he had he had cracked up once, cracked up meaning he had gone what they called flack happy, uh, which is another name for battle fatigue. You know, uh, he, he had, it was the Gotham mission that really got to him. And um, he needed to stand down Mrs. Turns flying lead. And uh, soon after that, he, he flew a mission to Berlin. Uh, the only time he got over what they called the Big B and then he was transferred from the 445th to another bomb group just five miles up the road. I went there to Old Buckingham. Uh, 
needed a an operations officer because they it it had been a not a hard luck bomb group so much as it it had been it didn't have the kind of leadership that the 445th it had. And so Jim went to help straighten that bomb group out. Didn't fly as many missions, but it was there when the run-up to D-Day happened. And, and everybody knew that this incredible thing was going to happen. They didn't know when. So um, and he, was, he was flying a few missions, but mostly he was prepping crews and, and briefing them. And, and he was part of the whole thing where the strategic targets became tactical targets. And that's how everybody knew, okay, it's coming, it's coming, D-Day's coming. Instead of going for a um, manufacturing plant, they were going for a bridge, you know. Um, they were going for marshalling yards, which was train, you know, the, the big train centers of town. Um, they were going for a particular barracks, you know. Uh, that's how they, then they would start to speculate, okay, where's it going to come? Because nobody knew where the invasion was going to happen, Calais, where, and, and so if they hit this particular bridge, oh, it's going to be Normandy. No, 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 it's not going to be Normandy. It's going to be, you know, so, um, and then when it finally happened, I think that's just probably the coolest thing in the book is when they locked down all the bases and, and everybody knew that this was the night, you know, this was it. How many missions did he fly altogether? Twenty. Did he, was there a limit to how many missions people would fly? No, no, they put you through whatever you could take. You know, some guys cracked up after one. Um, uh, some guys flew 35, 40, you know. There were a couple of his pilots, you know, these, these I, I really take time to flesh out these pilots because I think they're exceptional human beings. A couple of them finished their tours with the 445th and said, okay, what do you got for me next? You know, they just kept flying. They became fighter pilots, whatever. Uh, Jim was lucky to make 20 um, for a couple, you know, he was lucky to make 20 because of the stress of it, and he was lucky to make 20 because he didn't get shot down. Where was he when the war ended? He was a staff officer for the second combat wing. Uh, when the war, the combat ended and Hitler was dead, he was a, he made a full colonel, and he was commander of the second combat wing. So it was, he, he had risen very high. It was actually controversial because he wasn't a general. Usually that required a general's rank. But he did it as a colonel, and it was sort of a, a gesture to say, you know, thank you for everything you did. And so what, he, what it involved was just getting the guys home at that point. Won the Distinguished Flying Cross? Two of them. When the war was over and he went back to Hollywood, was Hollywood different than he had left it? Yeah. So, Brian, so you, um, so you leave this position for five years. So you go and do something else, and then you come back. Now, what's going to change? Well, probably everything. You know, the camera guys are going to be different. You know, maybe the executives are going to be different. Um, the way that the show is done is probably going to be different. Well, Jim experienced all of that, in, you know, in spades. His, the entire Hollywood community had changed. He had been gone for five years. Hadn't made a picture in five years. That's an eternity. And uh, in addition, you know, there's a photo, a side-by-side -side photo that you must have seen in the book. What he looked like in 1942 when he had won his wings. He's a fresh-faced kid. 1944, he's been through 14, 15 combat missions. He looks like his own father. He looks old and haggard. So he's coming back, not the youthful leading man who had left. Were there actors who went off to war and then came back and were not able to resume their careers? Yeah. 
Yeah, Wayne Morris is like the big example because he had been a Warner Brothers up-and-comer, Brother Rat, um, the kid from somewhere, kid from Kokomo, kid from somewhere else. But after the war, he had been an ace fighter pilot. Became a, it was, he was over. He was done. And that had happened to some of them. I don't think Tyrone Power ever got back to quite where he had been before the war. He had been in the Philippines, I think, in the Marines. Um, so Stuart was really at a, a make-or-break time when he got back. And so you mentioned um, It's a Wonderful Life. And what else, what else did he get into? How was he able to, was, did he dis define the type of personality he would be and play those roles, or was it widely varied? He comes back on the Queen Elizabeth uh, with whatever, there were 12,000 guys on that ship or something. You know, every place you could stand, there was a, 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 an American coming home from the war. And he, he went to Indiana for a week, 10 days, and he decompressed, and he slept in his old bedroom. And he was just hung out with his parents. And then he went back to Hollywood. Uh, and there was a lot of coverage of him going back, because he's a war hero now. Um, but he doesn't even have a place to stay. So he goes to live with Henry Fonda. He stays in the playhouse behind Fonda's house, which is Jane and Peter's playhouse. They get kicked out. It's really like a little house, but they get kicked out and Jim's back there. And no, the phone doesn't ring. Phone doesn't ring for either Fonda or Stuart. Fonda's back in the Pacific. And um, uh, finally, Capra calls, and it was about two months of nothing. And, and Stuart's thinking, I think it's over. You know, I think it's over. I, I, he, he even quotes himself, you know, he even says, I, I can't play leading men anymore. I, I'm too old. <laughs> and he's not 40. You know, he's 38 or whatever. Um, but Capra calls, and what Capra says is in, in not what Jim wants to hear. Jim wants to make a comedy. That's what he says. He gets off the boat. He has a press conference and says, I want to go back to Hollywood, and if anyone will have me, I want to make a comedy. No one called with a comedy. It was, it was Capra calling with this bizarre concept of this man wants to commit suicide, and there's an angel that needs to win his wings. And the first session where they sat and tried to talk about that, uh, Stuart got up and w walked out because it's too bizarre. I don't want to do a suicidal man, you know, forget it. It was his only offer, so he had to think about it. Lou Wasserman's his agent, the super agent. You know, Jim, you better take it. So he takes it. And you say it was not a box office hit, it lost money. It lost money because it was so expensive to make. If you think about that picture, the long picture, a lot of setups, um, and then there's that, that whole uh, snow thing. You know, which is a major component in, in the picture. The last reel is all this snow and all these process shots. So the, the bridge scene with the water and Clarence jumping in and Jim jump, you know, all of that adds up money-wise. And then shooting these exteriors of Jim running down the street, you know, Merry Christmas, all that is shot in the desert in June at 90 degrees in the dark with fake snow that they had just invented. So it's a $3 million picture is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and it made, you know, maybe three million. So it, it almost broke even. And so, it, you know, it was not an instant classic. Uh, you, he was uh, active or he was in the Air Force Reserve for a long time after the war. And as Vietnam, to his credit? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was a hawk on defense. Um, I, I end the narrative pretty much uh, with its wonderful life. And I have a little epilogue where I talk about 
you know, yeah, he stayed in the reserve because he, he it was the happiest time of his life. He's <laughs> fighting this war. It's crazy. But he, um, he loved doing something important. He loved the success of proving himself as a soldier. Um, he loved the camaraderie. It's the only time he seems to really have liked being around people is these other guys who are going through this life and death thing. So he wanted to keep his hand in that. And, and so, yeah, he, he continued in the Air Force Reserve. And you can see, looking at his personnel file as you go through the years, how it waned. You know, the interest waned as the years went on. Uh, but he did fly in a mission in Vietnam. He did. And, and uh, somebody asked me about that recently who's doing an article. And, um, and he, he needed the points because he wanted to retire with full pay. So that's one reason that he did it. That mattered to him at that point. Oh, yeah, very much. You know, he, like I say, him and money. Um, but there were also other reasons. He, he was a hawk on defense. Uh, big on the strategic air command. He believed in stopping communism. I mean, there were a lot of reasons why he went. He wanted to show uh, his face to the troops. He wanted to morale booster. He wanted to go and, and uh, fly one more mission if he could. All those things added up, and he went. Do you have a favorite couple of Jimmy Stewart movies to recommend to us? How about some of the early ones that might be like pre-war? Um, uh, of Human Hearts is one that is truly bizarre because he plays like this doctor uh, during the Civil War. So, I mean, there's that whole angle, like with his grandfathers. And he ends up being scolded by Abraham Lincoln toward the end of that picture uh, because he hasn't been good to his mother. You know, you got to see that one, really. And Vivacious Lady is another one because he's playing this um, small-town guy who brings this, you know, nightclub singer-dancer Ginger Rogers home to meet his parents, which is very, you know, autobiographical in his way. There's, those are two I can recommend. Oh, and you say that uh, his folks back in Indiana wanted to throw a parade for him when he came back from the war. And... Yeah, he said no. You know, his sisters were planning this big parade, and, uh, and he wanted no parts of it. So, I mean, Life magazine was covering it, so, I mean, it was an event that Jim was doing this, but he tried to keep it under wraps as much as he could. And you mentioned your Carol Lombard book. Uh, are you working on another book? I have an idea. I can't talk about it because I don't want somebody else to steal it. It's going to take me a while. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Robert Matson. He is the author of this book, Mission, Jimmy Stewart and the Fight for Europe. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.